and welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, October 27th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, at long last, the House has a new speaker. I'll talk to CBN News Chief Political Analyst David Brody about that. President Biden throws a shrimp on the barbie for Australia's Prime Minister. The latest on what's happening in Israel and the Middle East, and a hearing on a law that would make it easier to find a cure for rare diseases. All that and more coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. And another real quick reminder just to tell your friends and family members and anybody you meet out on the street, really, about the DC Debrief. This is the podcast that takes a look back at the biggest stories from the nation's capital uh, over over the course of the week, and we'll give it to you straight. Just the information, just the facts, just the newsmakers. And, you know, we may have somebody on once in a while that's going to give you their opinion and their analysis on what's been going on. But uh, I'm going to give you I'm just going to give you the information and you all decide what to do with it. So if that's your thing, heck, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, let's get to the debrief for this week. There's the white smoke. We have a new speaker. It took three weeks and no small amount of fighting, arguing, and stress, but at long last, the House of Representatives can function once again thanks to the election of a new speaker, Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson. CBN News Capitol Hill correspondent Matt Galka makes the introductions for us. No Republican voted against Mike Johnson as he became the newest Speaker of the House. That was not the case with the other candidates in the three weeks since that the House has been without a leader. But now it's time to get to work, and Republicans hope that they have found a candidate to unite their conference. From the great state of Louisiana and the 56th Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, the Honorable Mike Johnson. The House was finally able to open again after Louisiana's Mike Johnson became the newest speaker. Turmoil and violence have rocked the Middle East and Eastern Europe. We all know it, and tensions continue to build in the Indo-Pacific. The country demands strong leadership of this body, and we must not waver. Johnson went from a relative unknown to third in line for the presidency. The evangelical Christian is a strong Donald Trump supporter and previously questioned the results of the 2020 election. Democrats immediately targeted Johnson's views. Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election. He's doing a great job under difficult circumstances and no amount of election denialism will ever change that reality. Not now, not ever. But the newest Speaker of the House vowed to work across the aisle. I do look forward to working with you on behalf of the American people. I know we see things from very different points of view. But I know that in your heart, you love and care about this country and you want to do what's right. And so we're going to find common ground there. House members have plenty of work to get to after a three-week hiatus. Virginia Republican Bob Good told CBN he believes Johnson's speakership is good for an Israeli aid package. He is a strong proponent of Israel. And I will say that the Republican conference is united that way. But what we need to do is to separate funding for Israel from this big package that Biden wants to do, where he wants to essentially hold hostage or hijack support for Israel to try to pass other things that are unrelated. I don't believe there are any coincidences in a matter like this. I believe that Scripture, the Bible, is <clears throat> very clear that, that God is the one that raises up those in authority. He raised up each of you, all of us. And, and I believe that God has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this specific moment in this time. 
And the first thing that the House did now that they were back to work with a new speaker, they brought a bill to the floor supporting Israel and condemning Hamas. You heard in Matt's story that Democrats are critical of Johnson's working with the Trump White House after the 2020 election to provide legal advice. They say Johnson urged his fellow Republicans to raise doubts about the 2020 election as well. The president was asked if he was concerned whether a speaker Johnson would try to have the election results overturned of a 2024 election should Biden win a second term? No. Why not? Because he can't. Well, look, just like I was not worried that the last guy would be able to overturn the election. They had about 60 lawsuits and all the way to the Supreme Court, and every time they lost. I understand the Constitution. Johnson has to get to work quickly with a government shutdown looming in just three weeks and funding needed for Israel, Ukraine and other big ticket items. We'll have more on this with David Brody coming up in just a few minutes. Biden welcomes the Australian Prime Minister. Anthony Albanese came to the White House for a state dinner on Wednesday. Before that, the two men held a joint news conference in the Rose Garden, where they talked about the relationship between the two allies and its importance in the Indo-Pacific region. Our alliance, the alliance between Australia and the United States, is an anchor. And I believe this from every fiber of my being, an anchor to peace and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific and, quite frankly, around the world. We see this through our work of the Quad Partners, India and Japan, to ensure the Indo-Pacific remains free, open, prosperous and secure. I also see it through AUKUS, where together with the United Kingdom, we're making generational investments in our shared security. Australia and the United States have stood together for more than a century, and it is indeed a great honour for me to stand alongside my friend President Biden here today. At the heart of our alliance are the enduring values that our people hold in common. A faith in freedom and democracy, a belief in opportunity, a determination to build a more prosperous and more peaceful world. Those values are timeless and they have never mattered more than right now. This was the ninth and most high-profile meeting between the two leaders, reflecting their work toward closer ties on climate change, technology, and national security. The U.S. also plans to provide nuclear-powered submarines to Australia as part of a collaboration with the U.K. And, of course, so much of this has to do with countering China's influence in that region. Next week, Albanese will travel to China to meet with President Xi. Albanese saying it's important for Australia to have a good working relationship with China, but uh, the U.S. also entering into this partnership with Australia as a way to help muzzle China's influence there. Israel latest. The long-awaited ground invasion of Gaza by Israeli defense forces has not yet begun, and there is growing speculation as to why. The U.S. says they are not urging Israel to hold off, but so far ground troops remain amassed along the border, still on the Israeli side. CBN News Middle East Bureau Chief Chris Mitchell has the latest from Jerusalem. Overnight, the IDF conducted a raid into the northern Gaza Strip, striking a number of Hamas targets to prepare the battlefield for the next stage of combat. On the ground, the soldiers say they're ready. As far as why we're not operating, I don't know why exactly. There's rumors because of the cabinet, the prime minister, whoever, I don't care. As far as the military is concerned, we are ready, we are prepped, we have been training, and we've been overtraining, and we have been honing in our tactics, in my unit at least. And I can tell you, as far as we're concerned, we are more than ready to go in 
to operate and to get things done. There are reports Israel is delaying the ground invasion while the U.S. moves more resources into the region to deter a widening war. Wednesday night, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed the nation. He said the time of the ground invasion will be determined by the war cabinet and explained what's at stake. We're concerned by one thing, saving the country, achieving victory. Our war against Hamas is a test for all of humanity. It's a fight between the Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas axis of evil and the forces of freedom and progress. Light will defeat darkness. In Lebanon, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah met with leaders of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas, their first reported meeting since the start of the war. The Wall Street Journal also reported that as many as 500 Hamas terrorists trained inside Iran before the massacre on October 7th. In the meantime, the IDF continues to bomb Hamas targets in Gaza City. A Hamas spokesman says 6,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, a number President Joe Biden questions. I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed, and it's the price of waging a war, but I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. Biden also believes the Hamas attack was designed to disrupt peace in the Middle East. I'm convinced. One of the reasons Hamas attacked when they did, I have no proof of this, as my instinct tells me, is because of the progress we were making towards regional integration for Israel and regional integration overall. And we can't leave that work behind. Now, you heard in Chris's story that one of the reasons the ground invasion hasn't yet begun is they are waiting for U.S. assets to move closer to the region. CBN News national security correspondent Caitlin Burke has more on the U.S. military involvement in this conflict. New intelligence suggests when Israel moves on Gaza, attacks on American troops in the Middle East will escalate as well. This warning has the Pentagon deploying nearly a dozen air defense systems to shield soldiers serving in the region. And it is our aim to avoid any regional expansion of Israel's conflict with Hamas, but we stand ready and prepared to protect and defend our partners and our interests and will act to do so. Still, some defense experts say the U.S. can't expect to deter Iran if acts of aggression are allowed to go unchecked. Right now, America is talking a big game, but we're not backing up our words with actions. The message that sends to Iran is you can take shots at American soldiers, a dozen or more shots. You can injure American soldiers. By last count, I think two and a half dozen Americans suffered injuries in this campaign of drone and, and rocket attacks. Nathan Sales, former coordinator for counterterrorism, says if the U.S. doesn't take some action soon, we could be dragged into another Middle Eastern war. Now, the paradox here is that the way to avoid fighting a war is to demonstrate that you're prepared to do it. By showing strength, you can establish deterrence against Iran, against Iran's proxies, whether it's Hezbollah in Lebanon or some of these other militia groups in Iraq. Last week, the State Department issued a worldwide caution alert for U.S. citizens overseas, warning of increased potential for terror attacks due to current tensions. In recent testimony regarding the Islamic Republic's threat to the U.S., Ambassador Sales and other expert witnesses told Congress that Iran's reach is not limited to terror organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah. It uses criminal organizations like the one in the Brooklyn attempt and has also approached the Mexican drug cartel.
Also this week, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee cleared Jack Lew to be President Biden's ambassador to Israel. Expect a vote in the full Senate in the next few days, as Democrats will look to try and get this done as quickly as possible. Virginia 2023 election. Virginians will head to the polls in a couple of weeks to elect new members to the state house and state Senate. But it's an election that's not just about Virginia. It's actually garnering some national attention. And CBN's Hillary Powell has the reasons why. Closely contested legislative races on November 7th are set to determine the balance of power in the Virginia General Assembly. Experts say the fate of families is also on the ballot. Democrats control the Senate by a four-vote margin, and Republicans control the House of Delegates by the same margin. Governor Glenn Youngkin, a rising national political figure, could bolster his agenda with the GOP gaining the majority in both chambers. If Youngkin gets his Republican trifecta, you know, the Democrats have been saying that in Virginia, we may start looking, you know, in terms of our legislative agenda, you know, we may start looking more like, say, a Florida or a Texas. That trifecta would likely allow Youngkin to push through priorities, such as protecting parental rights in education and greater restrictions on abortion. AP reports that Democrat Senate candidate Russett Perry is hearing from voters that protecting abortion rights is the number one issue, even for some Republicans and independents. Virginia stands as the only southern state that hasn't moved toward new restrictions on access since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. While Democrats argue Youngkin's proposed 15-week abortion ban, with certain exceptions, would endanger women's health, while supporters maintain science supports the restriction. You can see and meet your child um, before they're born. Um, you know if they're right-handed or left-handed, you can see their fingers and toes very clearly. Polling has shown that a majority of, of Virginians think that that's a very reasonable limit. Um, it's a reasonable and, and compassionate um, approach to this issue while providing resources for women in need as well. The CDC reports Black women accounted for the highest percentages of all statewide abortions in 2020. The Virginia Legislative Black Caucus argues vulnerable populations face a health crisis and wants members to protect abortion coverage. While congressional maps look a bit different after redistricting, experts still call Virginia a purple state, and both sides need to energize their base. There could be some who just aren't necessarily energized to turn out. They may be tired of the culture wars, concerned about abortion, um, you know, the whole business around what's taught in public schools. Some of these things, I think, make voters weary and don't speak to the nuts and bolts issues around jobs and access. In Washington, Hillary Powell, CBN News. The ACLU sides with Trump. The American Civil Liberties Union on Wednesday urged the judge overseeing Trump's federal 2020 election criminal case in D.C. to take another look at her gag order, saying that it is unconstitutional, overly broad and vague. Now, Trump, uh, they say Trump retains a First Amendment right to speak uh, and that the rest of us have a right to hear what he has to say. That's according to a brief that the ACLU filed. Uh, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin last week uh, granted special counsel Jack Smith's 
motion to impose a gag order on Trump after Trump had made a number of Truth Social posts attacking uh, some of the people involved in the case. And her gag order, which is currently on hold, bars Trump and his attorneys from speech that would, quote, target foreseeable witnesses, prosecutors in the case, and court personnel. Donald Trump has been appealing this. Now, the ACLU said the order is vague enough to violate Trump's due process rights, and they say that he cannot possibly know now what he is permitted to say and not say. From the brief, the ACLU says, quote, the entire order hinges on the meaning of the word target, but that meaning is ambiguous and fails to provide the fair warning that the Constitution demands, especially when, as here, it concerns a prior restraint on speech. Now, this is obviously an odd pairing, the ACLU, a, a left-leaning group, siding with uh, former President Donald Trump, but the Civil Liberties Group also contends the order is overly broad in violation of Trump's First Amendment rights, saying it could prevent him from speaking about key points in the campaign, including the results of the 2020 presidential election and the January 6, 2021 Capitol riot. A new Biden challenger, another Democrat, has officially entered the 2024 presidential race to challenge President Biden for the party's nomination. Minnesota's Dean Phillips, in an interview with CBS This Morning, said that he will challenge the president in the primaries and will launch his campaign on Friday in New Hampshire. I have to. I think President Biden has done a spectacular job for our country, but it's not about the past. This is an election about the future. I will not sit still. I will not be quiet in the face of numbers that are so clearly saying that we're going to be facing an emergency next November. Phillips said he's worried about some polling data that he has seen showing the president falling behind Donald Trump in both national and battleground state polls. He also said he hopes more Democrats get into the race in order to give voters a real alternative. Phillips is 54, and he says while he's a fan of the 80-year-old president, he doesn't believe that Biden is the right candidate for the future. Phillips admits he does have a long road ahead, many obstacles in front of him, as most of the party, especially the the, the ones in, in party leadership, has seemingly coalesced around President Biden. And it is hard to imagine how any Democrat will be able to make headway on against President Biden, um, although there is still a long ways to go before Iowa and New Hampshire. Hearing on rare disease therapies. Now, this is a story you're not going to hear about or read about anywhere else, but these are the kinds of stories that I like to focus on that I want to bring to your attention because I think it will likely either affect you, someone you know, someone you may know soon, someone you have known across the spectrum. And this the, the story we're talking about here is the Senate Aging Committee held a hearing on rare disease treatments on Thursday. The first such hearing in the committee's history, Republican Senator Mike Braun talked about why it's important that Congress focus on how to treat rare diseases and how to come up with therapies and, and how to get the FDA to make progress in this area. None of the diseases that our constituents have contacted us about have any form, have any form of FDA approval treatment, not one of them. These diseases are relentless, they're widespread and devastating. Most are considered a death sentence, but they are not invincible and our constituents are not helpless. Patients deserve a promising pathway at the FDA. 
Braun said he is sponsoring a bipartisan bill aimed at making FDA approval of such drugs faster. It's called the Promising Pathway Act. Promising Pathway Act would create a rolling, real-time drug approval pathway to speed access for individuals with these rare diseases. This bill does not undermine patient safety or FDA's gold standard for drug approvals in any way. Therapies developed through the pathway will be rigorously evaluated and continuously studied using real-world data. Democratic Senator Bob Casey is chairman of the committee. Give Americans living with rare diseases hope for the future. And while we've made some progress, many challenges remain, as we'll hear from our witnesses today. Too many people living with and dying from rare diseases still do not have FDA-approved therapies to treat or mitigate their conditions. I believe that every one of the, these individuals deserves access to an FDA-approved safe and effective therapy. Keith Deserick, chairman and co-founder of the Care Starts Now Foundation, was, a te was a, testified at this hearing. He lost his six-year-old daughter many years ago to diffuse intrinsic potein glioma, which is a rare type of brain tumor that mostly affects children. And he says that the PPA would allow grants to move forward with clinical trials that are specifically geared towards children. He noted that a lot of clinical trials will only start with adults, even though the disease they may be doing a clinical trial for doesn't really affect adults. Families are desperate for another chance, a chance of seeing their children go to kindergarten, a chance to see their child get a driver's license, a chance to see them graduate from high school, a chance to see them go to college and get married. We want a chance to see them grow up. Rarely do you have a chance or a bill that asks for no money, and then money is not really part of what we're asking for. This is that rare case when you can act to give patients fighting for the lives the power to save their own lives. I lost my daughter, but I refuse to believe that we cannot save others. You've heard today from some very compelling and well-educated witnesses. I'm the only one, however, that has lost everything in this and was given no options because there wasn't any. There was existing barriers that were either too cumbersome or our policies were built around the majority. And while some of these numbers may appear small from the aggregate, in the end, it is, not, it is with this type of cancer that experts also, also believe that we will have the greatest impact to be able to cure it. And so what we may ignore may be precisely what must save us. The Promising Pathway Act may be the single biggest piece of legislation that costs nearly nothing but may change everything about how we win this war against cancer. The Promising Pathway Act aims to make it easier for promising new treatments to get into the hands of patients while still maintaining the FDA's safety and efficacy standards. Senator Braun said there are over 7,000 diseases that are serious, rare, and progressive, but there is treatment available for only about 5% of those diseases. All right, everybody, that's your debrief for this week. Now let's get into our deep dive for this week's podcast. Well, there was white smoke pouring from the top of the Capitol this week as a new speaker was finally elected by the House of Representatives three weeks after going without one and essentially having Congress shut down during that time. Uh, Republicans did finally coalesce on 
Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson to be their next Speaker of the House. And joining me to talk about the machinations of the last three weeks and what it all means moving forward is David Brody, CBN News Chief Political Analyst and friend of the podcast. David, welcome back to uh, the DC Debrief. How are you, sir? Hey, doing well, John. Always good to be with you, sir. It's always good to be with you as well. And obviously, Republicans who are in the House had been criticizing each other for, for the last three weeks, understanding perfectly well that this was not normal and that this was not okay what was happening inside the conference. And I and there's so many names came came and went. You know, there was there was Steve Scalise for a little while and there was Jim Jordan for a little while. And then Mark Emmer made a cameo. That didn't last very long. How is it that the Republican conference settled on this gentleman to be the Speaker of the House. <laughs> well, do you have an hour and a half? I'd be, I'd be sure to kind of fill you in. <clears throat> yeah. uh, look, I, he was the sweet spot. He was the guy that threaded the needle. And so we can unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? Uh, look, l- l- let's start with this. Uh, well, there's a lot to start with. Um, first of all, uh, Kevin McCarthy, as we know, is gone. Steve Scalise tried. He didn't win. He was number two in charge. Number three in charge was Tom Emmers. One, two, three. Leadership, leadership, leadership. Gone. Did not happen. Mm-hmm. That is the headline, first of all. Let's understand that. Uh, the uh, the MAGA shot across the leadership uh, bow, if you will, of the GOP has been well received. If If people don't understand that the grassroots is angry, that MAGA is rising, if people don't understand that, then they don't understand anything at this point, because that was the overall point of all of this. And so Gates and the eight, the Gates eight, if you will, uh, they won. They won. It was messy. Mm-hmm. It was weird. It didn't look great at times for three weeks, honestly, yeah. but they won. And so then you say, I'm getting to the answer to the question, because then you say, well, what about Jim Jordan? I mean, Jim Jordan was MAGA. What happened to him? The problem with Jim Jordan is that he was so outspoken, that he was so uh, such a firebrand, that he had a reputation, uh, that he had burned some bridges with moderate Republicans in the conference, that he was a bridge too far for many of them. Mike Johnson, however, back to the sweet spot, was the guy that pretty much is somewhat of a carbon copy of Jim Jordan, but without the vitriol, without the mm-hmm. without the uh, baggage, uh, without really, if you think about it, that loudspeaker megaphone that Jordan had developed throughout all of the years. So he was a guy that moderates could at least get around and, and vote for. And of course it was unanimous. So, 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 so that's where we are. And so, you know, I always think of the, uh, the movie magic Mike, not that I saw it, John, but I'm just saying there's, there's a, you know, that's a separate issue and a separate podcast, but magic, yeah. magic Mike, that movie, this is a uh, MAGA Mike. Uh, MAGA Mike, uh, for sure. Yeah, go ahead. Feel free to use that, but I'm going to go to the copyright office before you, John. Uh, okay. But 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 it's MAGA Mike at the helm, uh, and this is a huge victory for the Make America Great Again movement. What it sounds to me is that, and I think this was this played out in some of the reporting, is that this whole selection for speaker really didn't have much at all, if anything, to do with policy. It didn't have much of anything to do with experience. It had to do with personalities and it had to do with maybe scores that were trying to be settled or or rifts from previous leadership votes that turned personal. Like this seems as though it was a this whole thing was a very personal battle but in terms of in, in terms of previous defeats at the hands of some of your Republican colleagues and that Mike Johnson was one of those guys that hadn't made any enemies to this point. Is that accurate? 
uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, not really. Uh, that's, okay. what, that's what the mainstream media, the liberal media want you to believe. Uh, look, this was a bow. And, and listen, let me do the disclaimer. All right. Are petty politics always part of every equation? Sure. That's always a part of it. That was not the main driving force here. Look, the main driving force was very simple. This was a rejection of the status quo that had been building for a very long time. You want to go back to the Tea Party? Let's go there. 2010, when the Tea Party came in. You want to go to Donald Trump in 2016? Another rejection of the status quo. Then you go to Matt Gates and everybody, he got vilified. Oh, he had a thing against McCarthy. This is just between Gates and McCarthy. Look, can we be honest here? Sure, there was some stuff there. I'm not going to deny that. But was that the main factor? No, there were eight others that joined Gates. And beyond all of that, there is a new Speaker of the House because here's why. It was a uh, rejection of the status quo because continuing resolutions that the that the government um, on both sides has done forever was going to be a non-starter to some of these MAGA Republicans. And, and so therefore, it's not just about continuing resolutions, but if this was a shot, like I said, across the leadership bow of the GOP. That's what this is what was always about. Everybody wants to say it was about petty politics and, and personality clashes. And of course, that always factors into everything to a degree. But that was not the main driving force. Look, folks that uh, believe in the MAGA movement, uh, you know, they picked up the phone. Uh, and they called their congressmen and they said no to squeeze. They said no to Emmer. It worked. It worked. Yeah. And, and, and what we have is a Mike Johnson who, like I said, thread the needle. So I think that's what this is really about, John. Now, Kevin McCarthy obviously struggled to find any kind of middle ground or common ground, specifically when it came to spending and when it came to the continuing resolution that, that he agreed to, to keep the government open. And now Mike Johnson has a, a similar situation sitting in front of him that we're a few weeks away from another potential government shutdown. And it, it doesn't seem as though that there are that any positions have have really changed a whole lot. Just the the speaker is different and his background is different, like like you've been saying. But is the, if he's saying no continuing resolutions, like if that's part of the if that's part of the uh, the, the MAGA platform here and, and wanting to change Washington, how do they avoid a government shutdown coming up in a few weeks? Is there is there a path? Is there a way to get all these appropriations bills funded to get an agreement with a Democratic controlled Senate with a, a, a White House in which a Democrat is sitting in the Oval Office? Or is Mike Johnson going to be faced with the same kind of decision that Kevin McCarthy was faced with a few weeks ago? Well, it's a great question. And so let me do call it the macro view or the disclaimer view. Uh, but I think what you're going to see is Mike Johnson and, and hear me out for a second. Mike Johnson will go for the continuing resolution right this moment because we've only got, what is it, three weeks, four weeks yeah. until November 17th. So he'll, he's boxed into a corner at this point. You can't pass, what is it now, eight or is it 12? I don't know how many appropriation bills they have left. You're not going to be able to do that in three weeks. So he's going to be boxed into a corner. So he has already come out privately, or at least privately to Republicans and said, look, I got to I got to do the continuing resolution in November. But they're not going to, they, Gates and all of the other MAG Republicans will not hold him accountable on that because of the tough situation he's in here at the last moment, knowing you can't get eight or 12, or whatever it is, appropriation bills passed. Also, here's the other part, and this is the key part, John, don't miss this, is that the reason he wants to do the continuing resolution now is because otherwise, what's his other option? Well, everybody talks about these appropriation bills. Hold on for a second. What you're talking about is you've got the Senate you've got to work with, and the Senate's going to try to jam the House into passing a lot of the Biden programs, a lot of the Biden money, a lot of all of that stuff within three weeks. And Mike Johnson doesn't want to um, basically agree to any of that because that would be for the whole fiscal year. 
for 12 mm-hmm. months. So yeah. that's why he's saying, look, let's put this off till January, possibly even till April, John, but let's put it off till January, put it off to April. Let's get our deck ducks in a row. And then at that point, from that point forward, no more continuing resolutions. We'll have the appropriation process in order by that point. And that's what they will hold him accountable on going forward from either January or April rather than November. Uh, one of the one of the issues that I know the, the mainstream media has been has been hammering uh, Mike Johnson uh, about was um, his so well they, basically the the 2020 election overturning the the election uh, the reporting is that he had he was working closely with President Trump to to figure out legal ways to to do that or to encourage him to to continue to legally challenge the election results in in four states. What factor do you think that will have moving forward on his ability to work with Democrats? And is is that a fair critique, a fair criticism of his role in, in what the legal challenges of the 2020 elections? It is 100 percent not a fair criticism. But of course, once again, back to the liberal media taking their cue, by the way, from Democrats. Let's be honest, John. I mean, look, can we just call it out? I'll be honest with you, John, not to get in a lather. And I, you know, I need to kind of calm down and maybe take a sedative. But I, I'm really kind of I'm smiling as I say this. I'm, I'm kind of getting sick and tired of the liberal media peddling narratives. Look, here's the situation. Okay. You got to remember the time, right? It was roughly in that late November, early December stage, even into December. And then I think in early January, before January 6th, where literally uh, Mike Johnson and all of the other Republicans went forward with a letter saying, look, we, we, we want to see this challenged legally. Where in America? I, I'm confused. John, help me out. I mean, can you not challenge uh, election results in court? Well, the answer is, of course you can. Now, if the courts don't take it, and by the way, the courts never did, and they never saw the the, the case on merit, but w- w- why all of a sudden does that mean, just because he had some questions, some concerns, some uh, problems with the 2020 election, which by the way, this just in, 70 to 80 million Americans did too. What is so wrong about challenging it in court? But the media will have you believe that if you challenge anything, if you don't go along and say, no, we need to have a peaceful transfer of power and we can't challenge anything. No, that is a sheep mentality. And I'm getting sick and tired of, I'll be honest with you, John, I'm just going to say it, John. I know I'm on a roll. I'm just going to say it beyond the liberal media and Democrats, Republicans buying into that, conservative Christians buying into that. Use your brain. Be a critical thinker. What is so wrong about legally challenging the results of an election? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I bury the lead? Democrats have done it in years past. So the point is, is that that this is all about getting Trump and not wanting them to see the White House again. And they want to lump Speaker Johnson in with Trump because they think that if he can get lumped in with Trump on this 2020 election stuff, that all of a sudden, uh, indeed, uh, they're going to be able to take back control of the House. And so that's what this is all about. Last thing for you here. And um, I, I think one of the one of the things that I was not aware of was how important it is for a Speaker of the House to be able to be a good fundraiser. Uh, and uh, this is this is an area there are going to be many areas that a, a House Speaker that a Republican in leadership has to do that. Mike Johnson is someone who is one of the most inexperienced members of Congress or lowest ranking members of Congress in terms of seniority to ever hold this job uh, will will ever have it. Um, what does he need to do in order to solidify some of those aspects of being a House Speaker in order to do the job effectively? Well, I don't think he's going to really be able to do anything um, from a uh, what's the word from a systematic standpoint. I mean, I mean, there might be certain things that he can do. Maybe you know, obviously, travel more, be more engaged with X, Y, and Z, or certain people. But here's the thing: uh, 
what he has to hope for is that he becomes the new darling of the Republican Party uh, and the PR game uh, basically takes off for him in a positive way. If that's the case, then he's going to be the on-demand guy. And with on-demand comes money. And, and I think that's the way that flows. But, you know, it's fascinating if you think about it. This is a guy that had a congressional office in the basement next to the bathroom, and now he's third in line from the presidency. Yeah. I mean, only in America, John. And by the way, let's not bury the lead. Uh, he wasn't just talking about God the other day in his speech uh, on the House floor as new speaker. He's been practicing it uh, for a very long time, many calling him the first evangelical House speaker. Uh, in United States history. But beyond all of that, let's just forget that for a second. Uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, if you li- and I know you did, but if you listen to uh, the bulk of his speech, he put God at the center. He didn't put continuing resolutions at the center. He didn't put Ukraine funding or even Israel funding at the center. He put God at the center. He said, that's what we need. God is under assault in America. He's absolutely right. When have we ever heard that from a House speaker? Dennis Haster? No. John Boehner? No. Kevin McCarthy? No. Mike Johnson is different. And I just have a sense, it's a call it a political spidey sense, that he may do very, very well. Now, uh, real quick, I know we, you know, we've got to go. Who knows if the rapture is just around the corner? So I got to wrap it up probably. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, is that he's going to have some issues to deal with beyond the continuing resolutions. Do you separate Israel and Ukraine? He's going to have to. That's one big one. He's going to have to deal with the moderates. The moderates are going to come. Some people call them establishment. Some people call them rhinos. But there are 18 Republicans, at least in Biden, one districts that are going to put pressure on him. And remember, he can only lose four votes four Republican votes as it relates to uh, legislation that he puts on the floor. So he's going to have to tap dance. He'll have to figure it out. The question is, will he stay sturdy on MAGA principles and be able to navigate the treacherous Potomac waters? And I think uh, that's been a challenge, obviously, for not just it won't be just a challenge for him. It'll be a challenge for anybody in that job. Yeah, it's if you thought the hard part was getting the job, the the, the harder part is actually doing the job now. That's right. So we'll see we'll see how he does. But make sure that you're following everything that David Brody is doing for us over at CBNNews.com. David, thank you for coming on the DC debrief. You bet. Anytime, John. Thanks. All right, everybody, now let's get to the closer, and we'll take a look at the GDP numbers out from the U.S. government this week. The Commerce Department reported on Thursday that the gross domestic product, which of course is a measure of all goods and services produced in the U.S., rose at a 4.9% pace year over year in the July through September period. That was up from 2.1% in the second quarter, so more than doubled. Economists surveyed by Dow Jones had been looking for a 4.7% acceleration, so the actual number beat that number by two-tenths of a percent. It came due to contributions from consumer spending, increased inventories, exports, residential investment, and government spending. So people were spending money despite the in, despite the consistently higher-than-normal inflation. Uh, Spending at the consumer level was split fairly between goods and services, uh, and the GDP increase marked the biggest gain since the fourth quarter of 2021. Now, there is some pessimism over whether or not this number is sustainable. Jeffrey Roach, who is a chief economist at LPL Financial, told CNBC CNBC News that investors should not be surprised that the consumer was spending in the final months of the summer. And he says it's fair to ask whether or not the trend can continue in the coming quarters. They think not. So we'll see whether or not uh, in the next quarter, whether or not the GDP continues to move up. But some good economic news in the third quarter for the GDP. 
All right, everybody, that'll do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please make sure to tell a friend or a family member about this podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and a review. Let me know what you think about the show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief. Thank you.